do is I want to set up this text. So in order to do that, I want to back up just a bit and just bring to your attention kind of what we've already discussed as we've kind of journeyed through the Sermon on the Mount. You remember Jesus started out with the Beatitudes. You know, he talks about where you might find yourself blessed. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are meek, merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. You know, blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteous sake and all of these things. And he goes on and he gives this just teaching on divorce issues. He gives teaching on judgmentalism. He gives teaching on all of these different things. And when you go back and you start to compile the list of things that Jesus puts on your plate, specifically as believers, exclusively, as believers. It becomes a daunting task. And if you're listening to this, as I think they were, and it's just one shot, and Jesus is walking through, and he's just waxing eloquent on these these foundational doctrines of the Christian faith, on these instructions, and then you you, kind of stop where we are, and you think, my goodness gracious, I've got problems in every category. I'm judgmental. (laughs) You know, maybe I don't mourn over, uh, I I don't mourn my sin. Maybe I'm Maybe I don't, uh, I, I, I don't consider myself poor in spirit or I don't recognize that I'm poor in spirit and I'm just not there yet. I'm not a merciful person. I'm not a peacemaking person. You know, maybe that's you. Maybe you find all of your deficiencies just rising to the surface as you consider what Jesus has taught. And then you get to this place of, my goodness gracious, I won't make the cut. You know, if these are tryouts, I'm getting a red tag. You know, I don't know if they do that anymore, but, but I'm not gonna make the cut. There's just no way. But what's so great, and this is the way that I've been reading this, is the exclusive relationship that God the Father has to his children. And we start to see that come to bear in this next text, in my opinion. Okay, not, well, not just in my opinion, in, in, in the way that I think this is interpreted, in the way that I think this, Jesus is teaching this. So um, according to Jesus, this is how I'm going to preach this, is that there's a unique relationship that the Father has to his children. And that all of these things that he's asked us to do, all of these tasks that keep building up, we arrive at this this position. Jesus says, you know, I've thrown all this at you, and you're wrestling with all these things. He says, you want to succeed? You just have to ask. It's so beautiful. I mean, it's, it, it really should captivate our, our, our attention. It should stir our affections for Christ because he says all these things that are absolutely impossible by yourself. In case you're overwhelmed, and you should be, know this, all you have to do is ask. All you have to do is ask, and you will receive. All you have to do is seek, and you will find. All you have to do is knock, and the door will be opened. And this is where we are in this text. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asked him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And so Jesus gives this answer. You just ask, you seek, you knock. These are promises. These are statements that come with a promise. You ask, it will be given. You seek, you will find. You knock, and the door will be open. And then Jesus enters into this very interesting but brief dialogue where he compares the family structure to his own goodness and his own gift-giving as the father uh, of all who are in Christ. That's when he says, 
Which one of you being parents, which one of you having a son, which one of you, which one of you, if I may paraphrase a little bit, having a daughter, which one of you being evil, which one of you who can give good gifts, if you give good gifts, how much more, how much more and how much better are the gifts that our Father who is in heaven will give you? And I love the fact that he kind of brings in this aspect of the Father and the Son. Now, those of you who are fathers, you know the, or if you're parents, I should say, if you're parents, you know that there's a, a unique relationship that, that a parent has to a child that I could never understand. I, I couldn't, I could only understand one aspect of that growing up, right? My, my relationship as a son to my mom or to my dad. But becoming a father in 2008 is when I started to see the other side of that relationship, which was absolutely fantastic. So I have a unique relationship with all of my kids, right? As a matter of fact, uh, my kids are very unique in and of themselves. I just want to share this with you. This morning as we were doing uh, missional community leader training, I told Calvin, Marley, and Wesley to go in there, be quiet, watch VeggieTales, do your thing, just try not to interrupt. Now, that's kind of a, a hard thing because Calvin just doesn't get it. He's like, well, it doesn't apply to me, you know, So, because I have this special relationship with Daddy, right? So Calvin comes in a few times. I have to go in there. Sorry for that, guys, if I was a distraction, but I tried to handle that well. And then finally, after I gave Calvin a stern warning, his next attempt was, okay, this is what I'm going to do. So I hear the door crack back there, and I look, and there's this little hand with a juice box sliding past the door. And all you could see was his hand, and he puts it right there at the, uh, at the trim around the door. Hand comes back in. And then you hear this fumbling of fingers on paper. And he peels back the little Haven Ridge kids' uh, paper that we have there to, to, to block. He peels it back and looks. He goes, I'm being quiet. I'm not coming in there. You know, and so... I, I love it, but that's him, you know, and so uh, my, my kids are very, very different, and I have this unique relationship with all of them, but one thing I like about our relationship is that my kids can come to me and ask me anything, or at least I hope that they feel that they can. Maybe sometimes they don't. A lot of times, admittedly, they go to mom because for some reason they think Sarah knows more than me, but they go to her, right? But I love it when they come to me and they ask me questions, because it's indicative of the special relationship that I have to my children. And God has designed it that way. And that's why I love what the family structure points to. I mean, the husband and the wife pointing to Christ's relationship to the church. You know, a father-son pointing to God as the heavenly father to all those who are in Christ. And I love that picture. And I love the fact that kids can come and ask questions. And we should enjoy that fact because the fact that their default mode or their default position is to come and ask questions, it points to the relationship that the children of God have with God the Father. And that is that we can come to him and ask, seek, and knock, and that he will give to us. And he doesn't give to us begrudgingly. He gives to us out of delight and great joy. Which one of you as parents don't love the fact that your kids trust you enough and recognize a modicum of authority in you that they would come to you and say, you're the source. It's a picture of what we have in God as our father and as we are his children. You know, it's said that the average four-year-old asks 437 questions a day. Now, Mythbusters actually busted this, but I had heard this for years. I'm like, that seems a lot. I remember being in places, and I'd heard that statistic, and Wesley, I think, was about four years old. I'm like, yep, yep, because I, I, I reached my feel at about 30, and I'm like, somebody's getting punched in the face, okay? So 
He keeps asking these questions, and they still ask a ton of questions. To ask 437 questions a day would assume that a child is awake for 12 hours, meaning they have to ask a question every 99 seconds. Now, sometimes it feels like that many questions are coming across the table, but in reality, they're probably not. But the sentiment there is that they're always asking questions. They're exploring a new world. There's things that you've experienced that they know they haven't, and they're leaning not on their own understanding, but yours to get some kind of answer to these questions that they have. You know, so it's said that this is true, but it's obviously not true. And some stats say 200, some say 100. Either way, it's a lot of questions. Now, on road trips, I think we meet that. Because my kids ask the same question 437 times, not to mention all the other questions that they're asking. But why does your child come to you? I think it's because it's the child's natural disposition. It's their natural, it's their default mode to look to the parent as the one who has the answers. And I think God made it that way by design. Because yet it's just another, it's another time that God pulls back the curtain and says, I just want to reveal to you a little bit more of the relationship that I have to my children. Come to me, ask, because I am the one with answers. I am the authority to give you what you need. And here's what's important. Because this text is primarily about two things as I see it. It is about prayer, absolutely. But it's also about the connection that God has to his children. About the intimate affections as he has for his children. About the delight that he takes in answering, in responding to our prayers. I think these are the things that are, that are unpacked. But it's important to understand. Sometimes we get into this mode of, well, I'm going to pray these arbitrary prayers. I'll just mention them and and, and maybe I'll, I'll move on. But what I want you to see over this next minute, I just want you to see a few things to consider when you're praying. Because prayer is not a means to an end. Prayer is not what is a means to an end in the sense that prayer is the means by which certain things come to pass, absolutely. But prayer is not just a formality. It's not something that we just gather together uh, as a congregation and say, well, it would be sad if we left this place and didn't actually talk to God at all. You know, it's not just that. Admittedly, as we talked about this morning in training, we probably most definitely, if I can be so bold as to make this generalization, we probably spend a, 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 a sorry amount of time petitioning our Lord. And not just petitioning Him, but just exalting Him, just recognizing His goodness. I mean, read the Psalms. And just see the heart of David primarily. Listen to David as he writes and just says, he's singing this song to the Lord, and he's just saying, you're great, you're, you're awesome. And he's just doing this. So prayer is just more than a formality. Let me tell you what the implications are behind prayer. And these are just a few, for time's sake. Uh, I could have written these all day long. Asking is to recognize where the authority to answer comes from. So when you come to God and when you're praying, when he's saying ask and you will receive, what's happening in your asking, what's going on, here's the theology behind your asking, is that you are giving full recognition to the one who can answer your prayers. When we pray for someone who's sick or when we pray you know, for blessings in our life or when we pray for endurance through a trial, we're praying with the knowledge that he is the authority to answer our request. So there's something that's going on behind this. Also, asking acknowledges our neediness. I think one of our problems is we don't realize just how needy we are. Sometimes we live like we pick up ourselves by our own bootstraps and that we've actually brought something to the table that's of note or worthy of mention, but it's not. It's in Christ where all things have their value. 
It's because of Christ's righteousness that anything we offer to God is acceptable. Otherwise, our righteousness is as filthy rags. So asking acknowledges a need. So when we pray to God, even if you're not thinking specifically that, oh, I am a needy person, that is what's going on. That's what's going on in the heart of a Christian saying, I have needs that only you can meet. Or, or, or I have this need that I'm expressing and I need you to tell me if it's actually a need or if it's just a desire that's rooted in something that shouldn't be there. Asking is not just acknowledging a need. It acknowledges that we don't manufacture answers for ourselves. We can't manufacture these things. What only God can provide, it would behoove us not to pretend or to pursue the fact that we can, we can manufacture them ourselves. Asking also is an expression of humility. And I'm writing this out because I just want you to think, when you pray, there's more to it than meets the eye. This should be what's going on in your, in your mind. This should be what you understand is that this is an expression of my humility. Guys are notoriously stereotyped, and I don't like the stereotype, but we're notoriously stereotyped as those refusing to ask for directions or help at times, right? I've heard the joke all my life. The joke was made about my dad. The joke was made about my granddad. The joke was made about many of the men that have been involved in my life, and it's like, oh, guys never want to ask for directions. Why? Because we're too proud? Maybe so. I'm absolutely certain there's an element of truth there. Maybe we don't ask because we are too proud. But to ask is an expression of humility. But asking also presupposes a concern by God to hear and answer his children. There's a presupposition that you have when you pray. You're, you, you, you arrive at your moment of prayer and you've already made up in your mind that he's the one that wants to Hear your concerns that is willing to respond correctly in the best manner according to his perfections to your concerns. And this is what's happening in prayer. This is why God relishes, delights, takes joy in the prayers of the saints. Some of you may be sitting there saying, you know what, I won't voice this out loud, but in my heart of hearts I'm thinking if God has predetermined all things, what in the world is the point of prayer? I can pray this, but God's gonna bring to pass whatever he wants to bring, a, bring to pass. Admittedly, if you overanalyze it, it's kind of a weird, difficult thing. I get that. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, what you, need to, what you need to understand is that we are called to pray. We are called to ask, to seek, and to knock. You can overanalyze things to a point that you miss the point altogether and that you miss out on the blessings. You miss out on the God-exalting, Christ-honoring uh, uh, discipline of prayer. So I would caution you to be very careful in that way, to not overanalyze. Some way, somehow, God chooses to interact with prayer according to his divine predetermined plan. So your prayers make a difference. It shows in the scriptures. The prayers of the righteous avail much. Somehow these things work together. I was talking with Stephen the other day, and I love this illustration. And you can apply it in many different ways. But let's apply it to the discipline of prayer. To the discipline of prayer and making requests as God has commanded, you have a rope. And maybe on this side you have a chain, and there's a box that the rope and the chain come into, and somehow they're tied together. Right, And somehow you don't know how it's holding up the box, but it's holding up the box. But whatever's going on in there is something you can't see, something you don't know. But you know that this exists and you know that this exists. We know that God's sovereignty exists. I wholeheartedly believe the Bible teaches a predetermined plan according to the foreknowledge of God. I believe that. But I also believe that prayer affects change. I believe that God works through prayer. 
And I have to resign myself to the fact that I will find joy in understanding that there are things I will not see that are in this box. Am I using the illustration right, Stephen? Thank you. Stephen taught me a few things the other night, and it was, it was, it was fun. But I would, conversely, I would say this. So as Jesus is saying, all these things I've told you that you need to do, all these things that you want in your life, you just simply have to ask, and these things will be given to you, I would kind of go the other side and give you a warning. Sometimes we don't see conversions. Sometimes we don't understand the scriptures. Sometimes we don't see the Bible displaying its power. And maybe sometimes you're saying, I don't hear from God. And then my question would be, are you asking for those things? And not just are you asking. Do you ask God to seek conversions? Do you ask God to bring to salvation the person you've been laboring with the gospel? Do you ask him, and then do you seek, and then do you knock? Now, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself because I haven't explained what those are, but hopefully you'll keep that in mind and things will come full circle when we, when we kind of move through this. The book of James chapter 4 verse 2 says you do not have. Why? Because you don't ask. You don't have because you don't ask. Maybe we complain. Maybe we're disgruntled. Maybe we feel like we're in darkness because, you know, God, I'm his child, and God hasn't revealed this to me, or God hasn't shown me this, or I don't feel like he's present in my life. I don't feel like he's near. My first question would be, are you seeking him? Are you asking him to be those things in your life? If not, what leg do you have to stand on? Are you just expecting God to throw these things on you when he's clearly told you that you draw near to me, and I will then draw near to you? So he says to ask. You just have to ask. But he doesn't stop there. He says after you ask, you need to seek. And this isn't redundancy. We don't read this as ask, ask, and ask, or seek, 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 knock, knock, and knock. This is not the way Jesus is speaking. Jesus is very intentional with his words. Seeking is different than asking. It's a different idea altogether. As a matter of fact, uh, just share a little Greek with you. Not that I'm a Greek scholar, but just in my studies, this is what I came across. There are two tenses that could be used here. One is definitely used. One is uh, substituted sometimes. There's an aorist tense, and then there's a present tense. The aorist tense, when it talks about seeking, it means to do one particular thing at a specific point for a specific time. So God may say, seek, or he may say, do this. And it may be written or spoken in the aorist tense, meaning I'm saying to do this one time. I may say to you, God may say to you, go and share Christ with this person. God may say to you, do this or do that. In the scriptures, when we come across these, if it's the aorist tense, it's to be understood as he's saying do this one time and do this uh, for this specific time. Now, the present tense means to go on doing a particular thing indefinitely. This is the implication behind seeking. So if this is somewhat confusing, you can kind of scratch aorus tense from your brain and just understand the tense that is used. When he says to seek, he means you do it indefinitely. You do it continually. You do it without ceasing. The same as praying. You pray in a present tense. You're always praying. You're always communing. You're always fellowshipping with God in that sense. Seeking implies, implies action. It's the other side of the coin to asking, and it shows the tandem nature of prayer. So just to ask is not what is expected of when God says for us to pray. There's a belief that is attached to our prayers, and that is, uh, that is uh, manifested through our seeking and through our knocking and through our asking. Don't get me wrong. Don't just, and here's some, here's some uh, examples for you. Don't just ask for a greater understanding of the word. 
but labor in the word, labor to read and to reread and to meditate and to memorize. What if you just peruse over something one time and say, well, I didn't get it. But God is saying, I will give you what you ask. Pursue it. Ask for this understanding because God wants you to know his word, right? How else does he expect you to hide it in your heart if you don't know it? So the idea is share, read the word, reread the word, and reread the word. Labor to gain such an understanding. Here's another example. Don't simply just ask the Lord for a healthy relationship with your spouse. I hope you men and you women, I hope this is what you're praying for all the time. Lord, govern my relationship to my wife. Govern my relationship to my husband. Father, make us proactive in whatever we need to do to to bring health and sustainability to this marriage. Lord, we're sinners, we're broken, and so we're gonna clash, we're gonna fight, and it's gonna be ugly a lot of the times, but Lord, we're beseeching you, we're petitioning you, we're begging you, we're asking you to respond in this way. But you don't just stop there, that's where you start. You seek passivity. There's no room for passivity in pursuing the answers of God. You ask and then you seek What does that look like? It might look like going to counseling. It might look like getting in the Word of God, obviously, and saying, what does God's Word have to show me? Rather than just expecting something for nothing and saying, God, give me this. I'm going to sit back here and just wait on it. First of all, God doesn't owe you that, but that's typically not how that works. The idea is to seek, to seek, to go after. It's the other side of the coin to asking. What should you do in addition to, what, what should you do in addition to asking for freedom from sinful bondage? I mean, this is something that all of us should pray. We have some sin, some area that may reoccur in our lives that we struggle with, whether it's pride, whether it's greed, whether it's lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, whatever it is, those are just some heavy hitters that come to mind. Do you petition the Lord and say, Lord, free me from this bondage. Lord, I, I have been free. I'm free from the condemnation of it, but Lord, I need freedom I need, I need freedom, not salvifically in that sense, but Lord, I need, I need freedom from this, from this compulsion. Lord, I need freedom you know, from, from this desire. Lord, show me uh, 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 defensive mechanisms that I can put in place that will help deter me from what my natural propensity is or towards. You know, it's seeking help to get out of that bondage, whatever the case may be. And that's why so many people end up entrapped in these deep-rooted sins that destroy marriages, that destroy careers, that eventually just really destroy someone's relationship with Jesus. And I'm not saying losing salvation. I'm saying if you're a genuine follower of Christ, your fellowship with God because of sinful bondage will be tainted all day long. It will be hindered. Not, Not that he will love you less, but you will love one and hate the other. Do you remember that? And if your love and affections are for one thing, anything that's not God, it's idolatry, and that does not make for good bedfellows. So what should you do in addition to asking for freedom from sinful bondage? You should actively fight against sin. John Owen wrote a book called, um, oh, if I, my memory's, uh, The Mortification of our sin. I think he wrote, it's called The Death of Death. And in this book, he wrote about the mortification of our sin. And he says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And the sentiment is so true. He says, fight against your sin. Don't just ask, but seek freedom. Seek the equipping that you need to fight against this. And not to just fight 
with, uh, to fight with fruitfulness, to fight with hope. I mean, this is, this is why Paul goes into this armor of God section of Ephesians chapter 6. He's saying, these arrows are coming at you. And you need to wise up and gird your loins. You need to put on all of the, all of the armor of God and then wage war carrying the sword of the Spirit, carrying the shield of all, all these things, wage war against sin. And guess what? The Holy Spirit is waging war. God the Father, God the Son, waging war, and you join this army that is assured to win. But there's this idea of activity in your asking, because asking and seeking are two sides of the same coin. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He says, ask, seek, and do what? Knock. And again, this isn't redundancy. It's not just vain repetition. Knocking implies a perseverance. Seeking is, okay, I've sought you. You know, I've asked. God, I've read uh, on judging. I've read on the speck in my brother's eye and the log in my eye. And Lord, I'm really having a hard time understanding this. I've asked you. Well, I'm going to seek you, Lord. I'm 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 going to read this and I'm going to read it for a week. I've sought you. Perseverance has longevity in mind. Perseverance has, as a connotation, this idea that you will be doing this indefinitely. You will be doing this continually, that you will not cease, that you will not stop, because it shows the faith that says God is faithful to answer. And whether it takes a month or whether it takes 40 years, God will answer. Asking is an indication of trust. Seeking is an indication of of effort. And knocking is an indication of the will, an indication of the heart. It's a drive to continue on no matter what the hurdle, no matter what the obstacle. And perseverance is, uh, has strong undertones throughout the Scriptures for the life of a believer. I didn't record all the Scripture passages, but I got these from, from different Scriptures throughout the, uh, throughout the Gospels and some in the Old Testament, Old Testament. Perseverance in suffering is mentioned in the Scriptures. I know that specifically is all over the place, but where I first saw was in Revelation Perseverance in suffering, perseverance in doing what is good. Do not grow weary of doing what is good, is what Paul writes. There's a perseverance there. You're asking God, God, help me to make wise choices. God, help me to do what is right. Help me to see what is right. Help me to live in a manner worthy of my calling. And you're doing these things, and you're persevering in doing what is good. You're not just asking. You're not just seeking initially. You're not just looking and saying, well, I've spent some time. You have this mindset of, I will spend my life Eagerly anticipating the sanctifying work that God will do for me. Perseverance in trial. Does that not what James says? He says, consider it pure joy when you face these trials of many kinds because the testing of your faith develops perseverance. There's perseverance to fight. And I think that's all over the Scriptures as well. And listen to God's response to persistence. Listen to God's response to perseverance. There's several parables that Jesus gives. And understand when Jesus gives a parable, what is he doing? He's trying to paint a very clear picture for you to see who God is and how God acts and his nature, his attributes, and all of these things. In this specific parable, Luke 18, 1 through 8, I'll just paraphrase it for you. There's a woman. An injustice was performed towards this woman. All right? She was, uh, she was poorly treated in some way, and it was considered to be an injustice. So what does she do? She goes to the court. She goes to the judge. And she says to the judge, can I get justice against my adversary? And he sends her away. And she goes to him repeatedly. And this is the parable that Jesus is saying. And she goes to this man repeatedly, this judge, until finally 
his response is basically, but because of your persistence, because of your perseverance, I will grant you your request. And justice or recompense was brought on her adversary. And she was happy. Now, what is, what is Christ's point in teaching this? I mean, God is a judge, we know that. And where this judge in the parable may have seen this woman as a nuisance, it may have been, okay, since you keep pestering me, that's not what God is like, right? What's happening is God is saying, you keep coming to me. And I may not answer you the way you want me to on question one. I may not answer you the second time. It may be years. But I am faithful. And I mean what I say when I say ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. So then Jesus kind of transitions to this father-son type of relationship. But let me just read to you this text. This is a father's affections. We'll go through verses 9 through 11. So this text, this section of the text reveals a motive from which answered promises arrive. Jesus says, which one of you, if his son, notice the language, if his son He immediately goes into this familial construct. He says, now, which one of you, if his son, this is a leading term, it indicates God's fatherhood. This is the teaching behind this. Of which one of you, if his son, ask him for bread, will give him a stone? This is an absurdity. This is a rhetorical question because nobody is going to have a son or a daughter come to them and say, I need bread. Here, have a stone, right? And nobody is going to ask for fish and their parents are going to give them something that uh, is going to give them uh, a serpent or a snake, something deadly, something dangerous. Maybe there are those that would do that. But he even says, how are you then? If you then who are evil, now I think this can apply to two people. I think specifically it would apply to those who are not in Christ. Let's say, let's say those, well, two ways. I don't want to say exclusively or specifically. I would think it applies in two ways. It can apply to those who are in, out of Christ, those who aren't followers of Jesus, because even a mom or a dad can do good things for their kids, right? Now, I'm not saying they're acceptable and pleasing unto the Lord. I'm not saying that. I'm saying a mom and dad might protect their kid from harm, and I think that's good, right? And at the end of the day, it just bears the image of God's relationship to his children, even through non-believers, okay? Same with a marriage. You can have two people that are not Christians, but it's still the marriage relationship images Christ's relationship to the church, but one that is people uh, not equally yoked, it, uh, it, bears a, it bears a false image or perverted image in, in, in that sense, in the way that it, uh, it can't meet the, 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 in its function, it can't meet the requirements because you're not in Christ. So which one of you and his son ask for bread, we'll give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then who are evil, I think the second application is to those who are in Christ. Now our hearts of stone have been replaced by hearts of flesh, but we're still sinners. And as sinners, as imperfect creatures, we can still do good. We can still provide what is good for our kids, especially in the eyes of the world. But even as Jesus is teaching It's good to provide protection. It's good to provide food. It's good to provide shelter. It's good to provide wisdom. It's good to provide all of these things, uh, validation and and, uh, comfort in words. He says, you can give good things. He says, but you're flawed, and you still give what is good. And there's this point of comparison that is so key to this text where he says, but it compares nothing to what I can give you. 
It doesn't even hold a candle to what I can give you. And this is all with the backdrop of ask, seek, and knock. You will be given what you ask for. You will find what you seek, and the door will be open when you knock. He says, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things? Now, here's where the rubber meets the road as we're kind of bringing this to a close. The key is understanding what good gifts are. I've said through this whole talk, ask and you'll receive, seek and you'll find. And if we just leave it there, it can be open to some pretty faulty interpretations. Well, that sums it up for me. I need, I need, <laughs> I need a promotion. We need more money in our family. You know, I need a, I need a break from my wife. I need, a, I need my husband to, to shut his mouth. You know, I need, I need my kid to not be a nuisance. I need all of these things. So I'm just going to ask. And because God is a cosmic grandfather that just wants to give me everything that I want Him to give me, then I'm good to go. And that's not what Jesus is saying. God is most definitely not your cosmic grandfather, your deity in the sky, like a genie who just wants you to rub his lamp so that he can come out and grant you every wish that you want. That's not God. And shame on us if we ever teach him, uh, treat him as if he's that. So what are, what are the good gifts? There's a, qualifying, there's a qualifying statement here. I will give you good gifts. Not what you deem to be good, but what I have already revealed and will yet reveal what is good. You say, well, how do you understand this? Well, let me just take you back one more time. Here's the good gifts. You want God to answer your prayer? Pray that he might make you poor in spirit. You want him to answer your prayer? Pray that you might be meek. Pray that you would hunger and thirst for righteousness. Pray for those things. Pray the very things that God says he wants you to have. And this indicates that maybe he doesn't just automatically give it to you. But he's saying, hey, I want you to ask. I want you to experience the covenant relationship that I have with you and the love that I have for you as a father. If you want God to answer your prayers, pray for mercy, that you might be merciful. Pray that your heart might be pure. Pray that you wouldn't desire to look on things maybe as you've looked on things. Pray that you wouldn't respond to the things that you see in a fleshy, sinful way. Pray that you might be a peacemaker. Pray that God would humble you. and Pray that God would suppress the pride that likes to well up in you and that might make you a know-it-all in certain circles. Pray that God would suppress that because he exalts the humble, but he humbles those who exalt themselves. Pray for endurance through persecution. Pray that you might be salt and light. Pray that God would help you get a hold on your anger, that you might not hate your brother in your anger or hate your sister in your anger. Pray that God might control your lust. Pray that God might teach you, uh, uh, help you to understand that the idea behind divorce and all of these things and cause you to cherish the covenant that you have with your, with your spouse. Pray that God would, would, would teach you not to, uh, not, not to swear oaths but that your yes might be yes and your no might be no. Or pray that God would help you because you have this propensity towards retaliation. And anytime someone offends you, you want to just go off the handle and respond in kind. But God says, don't be quick to do such a thing. Pray that God would help you to love one another, that he would make you someone that's not greedy or stingy, but someone that is willing to give and to provide in gifts of monetary fashion, in gifts of, of any kind of other material fashion that you might just bless others, like cookies or Rice Krispie treats 
Follow the Lord and His will for your life. And that's been recorded, Austin. So anger, lust, divorce, swearing, an oath, retaliation, love for one another, spiritual disciplines, treasures in heaven. Pray that God would show you your treasures on earth, that he might eradicate those from your life so that you would have treasures in heaven. Pray that God would, 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 would squelch the worry and the doubt and the fear in your life and that he would deal with the judgmentalism. Do you know what I've just done? Don't you realize what I just went through? The Sermon on the Mount the topics of the Sermon on the Mount. And then Jesus comes to a close and says, all you have to do is ask. Because these are the things I want to give you, but the way that I've designed it is that I want you to ask. Not saying that he can't give it to you without you asking. I'm not saying that either. I'm not pretending to know everything God does in that realm. But it seems very clear that he's saying, here's all these things, and I want you to have them. But I also want you to ask, I want you to seek, and I want you to knock. But if we're not careful, this can be taken out of context, just like Mark eleven twenty four can be taken out of context. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. I used to pray that the Lord would, I'm not kidding, I used to pray that God would cause a lot of swords to just manifest under my bed at night because I loved swords when I was a kid. And I think I prayed the same thing about, about guns because I love like playing with guns out in the backyard like I was an army man or something. And I would pray, and I'm like, you know what? Whatever you ask for in prayer, believe it. You receive it, and it will be yours. Lord, I believe that you can do this. Give me some guns. Give me some swords. Taken out of context, James 4, 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain. You fight and quarrel. You do not have because what? You don't ask. Oh, well, just ask, and you'll be good. Just ask the Lord. Be very careful, because handling the text so flippantly is what leads to prosperity teaching. Oh, God wants you to have everything you ask for. Nope. (laughs) Remember, you who are evil, you ask for things that you don't need. The key is asking for what is good. There's the formula. He says, here it is. If you're scratching your brain saying, I've been asking for all kinds of things, but not one of the things I've asked for is in this list. Ah, you need to change. You need to kind of regroup, recalibrate, and decide, okay, I need to ask for different things here because here's just my suspicion. Here's my suspicion. I think when God starts granting all of these things, and if you want a, if you want a greater list, I would, I, would, I, would, I would just advise you to start in Genesis and end in Revelation because you'll have tons of things that God says, this is what I like. If you, if you tithe with a begrudging heart and God says, I love a cheerful giver, ask God to give you joy because I'll just go on and tell you, we don't want your tithe. Austin's not stopping me. I'm going to go ahead. We don't want your tithe if you do it begrudgingly because it dishonors God, period. We don't need your tithe, right? We want you to, we want you to have what God wants you to have, and that is a cheerful heart, making you a cheerful giver. I don't talk about tithing much, but there it was. The key is asking for what is good. And here's the final thought that I have because I think there's one other text that I just have to pull in to finish it off um, because it's a text that, that, that I, mean, I mean, all of us have heard and have known for many years and I think it's such an integral component to bringing this full circle or to putting a bookend on this. There's a final component 
component to receiving what you ask for. And here's my question first. So how do we, as children of God, move to a position where our prayers become the delight of our Father in heaven and His agenda is to glorify Himself through making our prayers come to fruition? How do we get to that point? In addition to asking and seeking and knocking, what else is there? And I think it is delighting yourself in the Lord because Psalm 37, 4 says this, delight yourself in the Lord and He will do what? He will give you the desires of your heart. And then it begs the question, what does it mean to delight? If you are delighting in the Lord, this means that in the Lord, to delight in the Lord is to see God as your joy. He is your joy, period. Him, himself, he himself is your joy. Not what he can do for you. Those are good things. But be careful, lest he become the cosmic grandfather that just wants to grant your every request. Be joyful in who he is. Do you know the beauty of heaven is not the streets of gold? The beauty of heaven is not the mansions or not the way that the city is constructed or all of these things. That's not the glory of heaven. That's not what we're going to be enamored with when we get to heaven. We're not going to care about grandpa that died 17 years ago. That's going to be great if he's in Christ and there's a reunion, but that won't be the centerpiece of heaven. The centerpiece of heaven for those who have lost a young one and gone through an unspeakable tragedy, the centerpiece will not be being reunited to their child. The centerpiece of heaven will be Jesus. It's Jesus. It's God the Son. It's God the Father. It's God the Holy Spirit because you can't separate them, right? So to delight in the Lord is to see God, to see Christ as your joy rather than a tool used to attain joy. And I think Job captures the idea of delighting in God. If you want a practical help, listen to what Job says. Job 22, 23 through 26. He says, if you return to the Almighty, and I'm just going to highlight some words or phrases. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. Returning implies a period of being out of step with God at some point, right? If you return. We don't say to Christians who become Christians, well, you've returned to God. (laughs) No, you never were in God. You never were in Christ. So we don't say you've returned. So this implies that someone has walked out of step. He says, if you want to delight in the Lord, you want to know what that looks like, here it is, return to the Almighty and you will be built up. But he doesn't stop there. He says, if you remove injustice from your tents. So return, remove injustice. Anything that is not walking in a manner worthy of your calling, consider it injustice. He says, if you remove injustice from your tents, then he says, if you lay gold in the dust. Gold is a precious, precious gem, right? It's a precious, uh, you know, material. He says, This is laying gold in the dust implies an acknowledgement of earthly treasures becoming of less value or realizing the true value that these earthly treasures really have. This is thousands of years before Jesus' teaching on earthly treasures. And Job is highlighting it. He's saying, if you want to delight in God, you must first lay gold in the dust. And then he speaks of gold in this way. He says, the gold of Ophir, you must lay it among the stones of the torrent bed. In other words, consider a, a, a a, rush, a rushing rapid, and at the, that's, a, that's a torrent that comes through, and it's just 
mowing over everything in its path. And he says, you take that gold, that's, that's something that you consider of so much delight and a value, and you put it down at the bottom on that bed, and you let it just get washed over and washed away, never to be seen again. He says, if you want to delight in God, you start there. You start there. You lay your gold in the dust, and you lay your gold of a fear among the stones of the torn bed. And if these things happen, then, here it is, the contingency clause I just read to you results in this, the Almighty will be your gold. And he will be your precious silver. If you say, okay, Alan, I'm hearing it. I'm hearing it. I want to make God my delight. Get rid of your idols. Instead of waiting on God to somehow do something and for God to destroy those, not that he wouldn't do that, maybe God is saying, if you want to delight in me, You're going to have to show some faith. You're going to have to take some action, and you're going to have to take this gold, metaphorically speaking, and you're going to have to throw it in the dust or throw it in the torrent bed. You need to get rid of those things because once you get rid of those things, then you might begin to see and to savor me as I want you to. The same is true with any addiction. The same is true with our sinful bondage. So many times we think, well, well, God will, 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 will recalibrate my mind. God will renew my mind so that I will think differently towards this, but not until he does this will I actually do anything about my problem. And that's not okay. We got sinful bondage? Remove it. Do whatever's necessary to get it as far away from you as you can so that then you can see, so that then your mind can be renewed, so that then you can have a recalibration. But we don't do that all the time, do we? We say, God, I just want you to change me. God, I want you to do this so that I can say bye to these things. It's almost a contingency clause of your own. God, I won't get rid of this until you do something first. So in closing, what Jesus wants us to see is how much the Father loves his children. What better source to teach us of God's love? What better source to teach us of the intimate relationship God has with us than Jesus, his son. Jesus doesn't want us to see the Father as a divine genie who eagerly waits to answer our every wish, nor does he want us to see God as an old miser who refuses to share any blessings with anyone, but rather he wants us to see God as a benevolent and caring Father. Just, you bet. Vengeful, absolutely. But benevolent and loving, equally the same. The evidence of God's love is most assuredly found in his answering of prayers. But the most clearly revealed evidence of God's love is the gospel. John Edwards wrote these words. The gospel teaches us the doctrine of eternal electing, the the eternal electing love of God, and reveals how much God loved those that are redeemed by Christ before the foundation of the world, and how he then gave them to the Son And the Son loved them as His own. The gospel reveals the wonderful love of God, the Father to the poor, sinful, miserable men, in giving Christ not only to love them while in the world, but to love them to the end. And all this love is spoken of as bestowed on us while we were wanderers, while we were outcasts, while we were worthless, while we were guilty and even enemies of God. The gospel reveals such love as nothing else reveals. John 15 teaches us that greater love hath no man than this, 
Romans 5, 7 through 8 teaches us that scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet preadventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So while I think this text absolutely highlights and emphasizes prayer and the communication that we have and that God desires and that he delights in, by the way, I think it also teaches the intimate relationship God has to the Father. And then finally, I think it most assuredly teaches the beauty of the gospel because it was the gospel that brought us into this place where we can ask and be given, where we can seek and find, and where we can knock and the door might be opened. Let's pray together.